Please be seated. Uh, today we'll be reading from Romans 8, 28 to 39. I'm not sure what the page number is in the, in the Brown Bible in front of you. Yep, Romans 1757. I am going to be reading from the ESV, so there will be some slight changes. I know this is a common memory verse for you, so this will be a practice in getting used to the ESV as we bring this in. Starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these encouraging words. We thank you for uh, your provision for us. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for the hope and the security that we have in you, that nothing in all of creation can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. We pray that these uh, this word today would be uh, sanctifying to the body, would be glorifying to you, Lord. I pray uh, that you would, uh, as, Bob, as Pastor Bob says, strike a straight blow with a crooked stick like me. Pray that the words here would be memorable only insofar as they are true and faithful to the intent of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, John preached a great sermon to us. A great sermon reminding us about why we ought to be motivated practically purely by the love of God. That we our motivations should be, um, should be pure and right and they should be motivated by God's love and by God's word. What y'all didn't know is that John threw me a monkey wrench last week. Uh, I was actually planning on preaching something along the lines of what Bob was originally going to do for the summer. Some, some of those passages that a lot of Christians misunderstand or misquote or take out of context or struggle with. Uh, he was going to cancel that. Bob's going to cancel that series. He's going to preach instead on uh, the glory of Christ. But I wasn't going to let you off the hook. We were going to go through uh, potentially an unusual passage. For those of you who know me well enough know that I enjoy digging through some of those passages and trying to understand them. The, the harder passages sometimes are more interesting to me. And so we are going to go through uh, some of those, or possibly one or more of those interesting passages, like Numbers 5. Do you know in Numbers 5, there's a trial by ordeal where a woman even suspected of adultery under the law would have to be brought before a priest, have a sacrifice made for her, 
and then drink water, bitter water, made bitter by the ashes of that sacrifice, and then potentially judged. Did you know that was in the Bible? I thought about doing uh, some, some other ones, uh, like, like Moses after the golden calf, where he uh, goes through, he has 3,000 of the Levites go through and slaughter a bunch of the Israelites after making them drink bitter water, and then goes back to God with the audacity and says, you know what, I changed my mind. If you could just kill me, I don't want to leave these people anymore. <laughs> Did you know that was in the Bible? I was going to talk about that one. I thought about doing less, less controversial ones, and I thought, okay, well, what about passages like where Jesus uh, appears to not be able to, to, to heal a blind man at Bethsaida? Right? He, has to, he has to do process to get, this, to get this man to heal. What's going on with that? Why can't he just heal him in a snap like he heals everybody else? What's, what's happening in a passage like that? Why does, why does Jesus heal over time? There's passages in, uh, in, in, in Titus or in Timothy where, where Paul actually, in talking about slaves, he says, you know what, you, you, have, you have masters who are believers. You know what you should do? You should serve them even better because they're your brothers. And then he goes through and he talks about false peach preachers who, who love money and it leads to all kinds of sin. And then he has the audacity to tell these slaves that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a hard passage to work our way through when you realize the context that he's talking about. But then John came along and he derailed all of these plans. So I'm sure many of you are, thank you, John, for that. We appreciate that. We appreciate, we appreciate your sermon reminding us that we should not only be good for goodness sake, we should be godly for God's sake. So John, on behalf of the entire congregation, thank you for that. <laughs> Instead, I decided that I want to talk about one of the most beautiful promises that we have in Scripture. Like John, rather than uh, teaching on a passage um, uh, expositionally or expositorily or exegetically, a lot of X's, uh, Rather than going through the theology of it, I'm going to do something a little bit more devotional uh, for this sermon. It's one of the things that I continually come back to for hope over and over again. It's one of the things that I continue to come back to for strength and for a, a, the gospel salve for this sin-sick soul. Um, it's something that uh, I continue to need to remind myself even as I grow in my walk with Christ. The simple fact uh, that John reminded us and started off and started me down the path on is is simple. It's that we we are God's. We're His. No matter what. That we belong eternally to God in Christ. We are bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. We are given hope of new life by His resurrection. We are sealed. We are guaranteed. We are assured that God Himself will finish the work that he started in us. That he's the one that has paid the down payment, the indwelling gift of the Spirit. We are his. We are irrevocably, we are unmovably, we are impossibly his. And it's not because anything we've done. It's not because anything I've done. It's not because of anything you've done or haven't done. It's simply because our God has promised good to us, and our God keeps his promises. Some of you know that I have a condition from birth uh, called Chiari malformation. Um, we found this, we discovered this when I started experiencing headaches uh, shortly after I started attending Church in the Canyon, about 2009. Uh, I woke up one day with a headache, and it just hasn't gone away since. Uh, Chiari malformation is a developmental uh, thing during my fetal development. A little shelf in my skull developed, 
and it makes sure that there's not enough room in my skull for my brain, and so my brain actually sticks down into my spinal column about nine millimeters. Leaves lots of nerve pain, lots of headaches, uh, and I found out a lot of things uh, during that time. Uh, the good thing is I found out that Chiari is not fatal, but as I grow older and the, the morphology of my neck and everything changes, it could potentially block spinal fluid and I'd have to go through uh, a pretty invasive surgery to get it fixed. Not fatal, but not a fun condition also. Uh, I've been proked, I've been prodded, I've been experimented on. I, I love everybody, uh, many of you here, many other people. Everyone has a friend with something and they recommend something. I tried most of them, to believe it or not. Um, and I found that most of them work. I found out, do you know that you can get denied from a headache study for having too many headaches? <laughs> found that out. I also found out that I'm sinful. And I found it out in ways that I didn't know before. I found out that most of you are like me in that, in talking with many of you and how you handle suffering. Some of you know that uh, I sit in the back, I keep my head on the sound booth, because if I sit at more than about a five degree angle for something for about five to 10 minutes, I get a headache that I, that I will need to lay down for the rest of my day. My wife knows this pretty well. And that's so that's why I sit right about there, because it's right about dead center even, and I don't have to tilt, and I won't you know, be in a headache, and Lindsay won't be stuck with the voice for the rest of the day by herself. But you know what else I learned during this? In talking with many of you, many of you have things that are far worse than that. Mine's not fatal. Uh, medicine has helped, doesn't make it great. Mine's not life-threatening. When I look at my life, I've only lost one step-parent to cancer, but the rest of my parents, the rest of my family, the rest of my in-laws are all with us still. I haven't lost a lot. Some of you have lost all of your parents. Some of you have lost a spouse or spouses. Some of you have lost children, which I can't even fathom. Some of you have been brutalized. Some of you have been uh, abused. Some of you have been treated in ways that I can't even imagine relating to. But I also realized when I looked at my own heart, and I understand my own sin, that in the same way, we're not all that different in how we respond to how we suffer. Whatever the degree of suffering is, our response is still very similar lots of times. Sometimes it's really easy to go through the trials and struggles and pains of life and forget about God's good promises to us. Sometimes it's so easy for us to, to navel gaze or to neighbor gaze that we really forget about what God is doing in each one of our lives. And we start wondering, why, why am I suffering? We, this isn't, the, this isn't the, the, you know, the general problem of suffering. We get why there's suffering in the world, the world, you know, sinful fall, and we can have, we have theological labels for those. We understand that there's suffering overseas. We understand there's suffering for those people and in those times. But what we really want to know is why am I suffering this thing right now? Or why is this person close to me that's impacting me suffering that thing specifically right now? now. And I got to tell you, one of the hardest things is to try to figure it out while you're suffering. You, we've all had this experience. You've been suffering and someone comes to you, bless their heart, they're so nice and they try so hard and they want to tell you uh, something that's true. They want to tell you, you know, uh, God works all things together for the good. And you say, yeah, I appreciate that. We're nice. We smile. We know the intent. They're sweet. But it's really cold comfort if you have not actually understood this prior to that. 
Um, after having my headache for, for about two years straight and going into um, chronic depression and nearly ruining my marriage with Lindsay, near, nearly derailing my chances of having my, the sons that I have now, God taught me something. I was uh, rather depressed. I was rather self-pitying. And honestly, I, I really wanted to know if God, God actually loved me, if he still loved me, if I had done something so bad that that stopped. And, I, and that's, as, that's, as a, that's as, a, as about as reformed, if you've talked to me, I'm about as a reformed, five-point, Westminster-loving Calvinist that you can come to. And here I am struggling and thinking, have I done something so bad? Am I, am I, am I, am I so, like, how in the world can God be loving me if, if I'm going through something like I'm going through, where I feel like I can't even literally get out of bed because just being in the world hurts. Then this passage came up from a friend of mine, and he didn't give me any platitudes. He said, just read it and pray on it. And God taught me something about, the, about life from the passage. And I shouldn't even say taught, because it's weird. Have you ever had this surreal experience where you know something from Scripture? You know, you know it. But then something happens, and you... Learn what the you learn about it. Like it, it just becomes crunchy in a way that it wasn't before. It's a it's it's a weird experience to have where you could you it could it could literally be a memory verse that you have said since you were a child, and suddenly the verse is different. It just is different. Uh, it means something different. It applies something different. God uses it to move your soul in a different way. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you have that or some version of that memorized? It's a very common memory verse. What Paul is saying, remember devotionally, I'm not giving an exegetical case for Romans. What Paul is saying is that, a little bit more bluntly, if you're a Christian and you're suffering, it's for your good. It's not something we just endure. It's not something we just go through. It's not something we just have to grin and bear it. God uses it for your good because you are called according to a purpose. Do you know that Paul tells us in Philippians 1 that it's been granted to you by God not just to have faith, but to suffer? Now, in that context, it's to suffer for Christ, but it's ordained by God to suffer. Whatever you're suffering is God working all things together for your good. It's not, whatever the reason it might be why you might be suffering, we might not know what that good thing is. <laughs> Sometimes it's very opaque what that good thing is, and we may not ever learn it this side of heaven. Who knows? But whatever the reason is, it cannot be, the reason cannot be that God does not love you. The reason for your suffering cannot be that you have somehow wandered outside of the plan of God, that you have somehow been cut off from his purposes for his beloved. Whatever else the reason might be for your good, that is not it. Paul opens and closes this section with a kind of a, an inclusio, a kind of parentheses around it. Uh, on the, at the beginning, all things are working together for our good, and that nothing can separate us on the end from the love of God that is ours in Christ. But in the middle, 
he walks through why that is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some of his reasoning he has a little bit theologically, a little bit devotionally as we work our way through. And so some of the reasoning he gives, he starts out and he says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. He starts his thought with the term for, for giving his reason. Good hermeneutics, if you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Another rule of hermeneutics, very similar. If you see a for, you ask, what's the for, therefore? Very, very similar. We're called according to his purpose. That's why God works all things out. We're called according to his purpose. For, in that, because of the fact that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to sonship to adoption. Paul is telling us something amazing about our relationship with God at this point. Did you know that God didn't just choose you after you responded to the gospel and chose him? It's not an accident. He's not sitting there wringing his hands, waiting, and just hoping that his wooing has worked, and really, really hoping that you repent and believe so that he can choose you back. It's not how God actually works in our lives. Do you know why he chose you? I got to tell you, it's not because you're great. <laughs> he chose you for his good pleasure. Do you know why you chose him? Because he chose you. That's why. Because he predestined you for adoption. It's, again, it's not an accident. It's not, it's not out of control. It didn't catch him unawares. He wasn't, he wasn't blindsided by it. He foreknew you. And this isn't just God's general all-knowingness. right? It's not like how he knew that the sky was going to be blue in the world. This isn't how God foreknew that type of thing. This is personal knowledge. This is intimate knowledge. This is God's covenant-loving knowledge with his people. This is how a husband loves and knows his wife in the scripture. God foreknew his wife. He foreknew his bride. He foreknew you. He foreknew each and every one of you that has trusted in Christ. And he doesn't just know you. He doesn't just have covenant interest in you now that you've repented and believed. He, he foreknew you based on that he predestined you. The Greek is clear. He, he praorizoed you. The, the term praorizo means uh, literally when someone would go and they would mark out a piece of land for themselves. They would ordain it for themselves. They would say, this area is determined to be mine. Right? That's, that's how praorizo, prior to an act, was done. It denotes a property line. And so he preordained it. And what did he preordain? He preordained you being confirmed to the image of Christ so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He predestined each of you who have trusted in Christ to adoption. And he chose to adopt you uh, at an interesting time. Uh, this passage is actually very similar to a passage in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Christian, did you know that God chose you before he even spoke light into existence? He didn't just choose generally the church. He chose you by name. You have a name written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundations of the world, Revelation tells us. And again, it's not because you're fantastic. Uh, as Bob would say, each of us is just a dog-nasty sinner. We know that about ourselves. right? It, it's not because you're better or smarter or greater or more righteous or anything like that than anyone else sitting in this room or sitting in any other room anywhere else in the world. We can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And we can mean it. Because we know, as far as we know, we know our hearts way better than we know others. And if you don't know how wicked your heart is with apart, the love, uh, apart from the love of Christ, you should go in a dark room and, and reflect upon yourself a little bit more. But God, by his will, for his purposes, because of his love for his church, chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, because we're adopted having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sounding like Romans 8. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Tells us something interesting about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a helper. That's true. He is. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. That's true. He is. The Holy Spirit does bring illumination to the scripture. It's true. But Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal. As a, it's, a, it's a deposit. It's a guarantee of something. It's a guarantee that God makes to us of our inheritance that is in Christ. For us. Now, God is the one giving the guarantee. He says, I'm the condition by which you will obtain it. And I'm promising it's going to happen. God is saying he's going to put his own reputation, his own name on the line to guarantee it. That's what you do when you're a guarantee. Has anyone co-signed or guarantored for someone? You are saying, I am the one guaranteeing that this will happen. Payment, whatever it is. It comes down to you. The buck stops with you. Nothing else can stop it if you are the guarantor. You're the final say of it. God is the one putting his name on the line. So it's not because you weren't, I don't know how to say this, you weren't that great in your morning prayers. It's not because you weren't that sincere. It's not because you missed your some of your devotionals last. We can be so spiritually neurotic sometimes. Right? We can we can really worry that somehow if we've if we've missed a devotional, like God's gonna kind of really come down on us for something like that. But God isn't gonna stop loving you because you're not perfect. Guess what? He said in his word you're not perfect. The reason why God loves us and is going to finish it is because God is the one who is perfect. Because God's the one who has guaranteed it. That he's the one that's going to finish the work. This might seem like an aside, but it'll make sense. In Luke 11, 
Jesus tells us a parable about prayer to teach us something about prayer. It's the sleeper and the knocker, right? And he, and he tells us of a man going door to door after midnight seeking food because he's had an, an out-of-town guest come and visit him and he needs some food to help him. And Jesus says, which of you has a friend who will go out at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within saying, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. That's supposed to be a really bad answer, by the way. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, how many of you in Bible study or in church has heard a sermon or a talk on this before? How many of you have heard or been taught that the purpose of this, the takeaway of this, is persistence in prayer? God, please. God, please. God, please. So I'm not going to let you entirely off the hook from God's, from Bob's original sermon idea about teaching about uh, misunderstood passages. This is one. That has nothing to do with what Jesus is teaching us in this parable. Nothing. This is an honor and shame culture. That means that it is, it is important to protect your honor, to avoid shame, to protect your name for you and your family. If someone in that culture had an out-of-town guest that came at midnight and came through, is the knocker doing anything shameful? No. He is actually doing the honorable thing. They didn't have McDonald's open a drive-thru that he could send these people through. He is doing the honorable thing that these people coming in after a long journey, he needs food, he doesn't have anything prepared because they were unexpected, so he goes door-to-door to get things. He is doing the right thing. There's no, there's no shame on his part for what he's doing. There's no shame in him being persistent door-to-door. <clears throat> the sleeper is the one who has the potential to be shameful or not. The sleeper is the one who is, if in an honor and shame culture, in a hospitality culture, is supposed to get out of bed, it doesn't matter the inconvenience, and care for people who are coming into the village, coming into his friend's house to visit them, and to help provide for their needs if he's able to. Now let's go back and read a little bit of what Jesus says with that in mind. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. By the way, in in the story, we are the knocker when Jesus is talking to us. We're not the sleeper, right? We're we're the knocker. And he says, uh, because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence. In the Greek, the word for impudence, it's weird that it's translated. Impudence or persistence, it's never in any other passage, in any other use, ever translated that way. It does not mean that. I don't know why our English Bibles do it. It literally means without shame. It literally means shamelessness or to avoid shame. The idea that that Jesus is getting out is that we can have confidence in our prayer. We don't need to sit there, God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need this. And God blesses us because we're persistent. The idea is that, and Jesus wraps this up, why do you, you, Dennis, you have a son. If your son came and asked you for a bread, why don't you give him a rock? Because you love, you're a good, you're you're a sinful, horrible, wretched sinner, but you still are a good enough dad by common grace that you love your son and you give him bread when he asks for it. You don't give him rock. Why don't we give our kids a serpent or a snake when they ask for fish? Because we're normal. 
The idea is that if we as fallen human fathers know how to give good things to our children, how much more so does our Father in heaven? Our sons don't need to go to us and go, can I bread not a rock? Can I bread not a rock? Can I bread not a rock? (laughs) The idea behind the parable is that the sleeper, to avoid shame, even if for the sole fact to protect their honor and avoid shame, it doesn't matter. It says even if he's your friend, even it doesn't matter. He'll still get up and do the right thing. How much more so your father in heaven? The idea is not only is God a good and loving father, but God honors and protects his name. He is about his own honor and his own glory. And so we can have confidence coming forward to God in prayer because God honors and protects his name. I told you it would make sense and I, I, I would bring it back. God put his name as a guarantee for you. God put his spirit in you as a guarantee. God's saying, it's my honor that's at stake if for some reason you don't obtain the inheritance that I have promised to you. I am the guarantee. Even if for the simple fact that God would honor his name, we can have confidence. How much more so the fact that we know that he loves us to the point of dying on a cross for us. And so Paul continues after this. He continues after adoption. Not only did God foreknow us, not only did he predestined us to adoption in Christ from before he even spoke creation into existence, and not only has he sealed us with the Spirit as a guarantee that he'll see us to the end, but now we have what a lot of people call the golden chain of redemption. There, there, are, these, there are these four links that link after link after link after link. The same people that are in the first chain are in the second chain, or in the third, or in the fourth. No one drops off between each one of the links. And so he starts uh, by saying that all those whom he predestined, he called. All of them. Not one that he predestined is not called. And he calls his people effectually by the power of his spirit in the gospel proclamation. He calls them like Ezekiel calling over the valley of dry bones. The dry bones weren't like, you know what, that sounds really good. (laughs) I'm on board. The dry bones were spoken to life. God calls us like Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus wasn't like, you know what, I like that Jesus guy. I, you know, I, I don't want to make him look bad in front of the crowd, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come out. Jesus spoke him to life. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us that the light that shines in our heart, in the gospel, in our regeneration, is like the light that God spoke into existence at the beginning of the world when he said, let there be light. He spoke and it was. God spoke us to life. He wasn't waiting for us to do something. God did it. God brought us to life by his word. And then he tells us those whom he's called, those whom he's spoken to life, he's also justified. Those whom he's, that he's, he's spoken to life, he's redeemed. He's atoned for them. Jesus took their sin and he exchanged it for his righteousness. We are, we are, we're justified is a, is a, is a weird translation actually for the word. It means the same thing, but it, it, in Greek, there's, there's no same root word. It means we're righteousified, right? We're made righteous. We are made innocent. We are made in good standing before God. 
Um, and it, it's not just that we're brought back to zero, right? It's not just that God canceled the debts and says, you're even Stephen. Right? There's an exchange that happens. It's not just that our sins, our debt goes away because Christ takes it. We are given the righteousness of Christ. We, we are not only made that we're no longer a, a criminal, a fugitive from the law. We are now said you're actually in good standing with a judge. You, you, are, you are righteous. You are honorable. You are clean. You are pure. You are in right standing. That's what justified means. That, that not only uh, did, did, did Jesus take away our filthy, disgusting, dirty clothes, but he gave us in exchange his royal multicolored robes. That's the idea. And so he moves on and he says, all those who, who, who have been predestined, remember every single person is in the same. All those predestined have been called. All those called have been justified. All those called have been glorified. It's, it's done. It, it's, a, it's a perfect tense. It's a complete in the past thing. We're elevated with Christ to the holy and heavenly places in him. We, we are continually being represented by Christ as he stands at the honored place, the right hand of God, as he intercedes to God on our behalf. It's, it's, not, it's not simply, we're not simply waiting for the future glorification where we're given resurrection bodies like Christ. We are right now in Christ being represented before God the Father in heaven. And so Paul, out of all this, he asks, and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if all of that is true, and God is on our side, God has, has foreknown us, he's predestined us, he's adopted us, he's called us effectually, he's justified us, he's, he's sanctified us, he's glorified us, if all of that is true, who can be against us? Paul asks, who can bring a charge against God and what he has done for us? No one. The answer to the questions that Paul asks is no one. Nothing. Why? Because God is the judge who is both the just and the justifier. Who can condemn us? No one. Why? Because Jesus himself, who was dead and is alive again, who took our sin and gave us his righteousness, that's the same Jesus who is standing at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. So what then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulations? No. Can trials? No. Can distress? No. Persecutions? No. Sword? No. Nakedness? No. Headaches? No. Paul tells us that, that in all of these things, we're made more than conquerors. It's a weird saying, right? More than conquerors. Like can you just a little bit conquer? You either conquer or you don't conquer. We're made more than conquerors. That, that is, it's not even a problem anymore. Um, it, it's not just that we're, we're victorious. We just, we, we're, <laughs> you're not victorious. Christ in you is victorious. You're more than conquerors because you didn't even do the conquering. You just get the benefits. He tells us that, it's, it's not because of anything we do or don't do. It's, it, and, and that there's nothing 
that can change that. There's nothing in death. There's nothing in life. There's no angels. There's no governmental power. There's nothing in your past. There's nothing in your future. There's nothing anywhere as high as heaven or as low as Hades. There's nothing in all of creation. And by the way, I don't know if you've looked around. Every one of you is in creation. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Can you think of anything that isn't part of nothing? Nothing. Now, some of you might come back to me and say, okay, but, but Tyler, wait a second. You don't know my life. You don't know my heart. You don't know how I've sinned. I've done terrible things. I've done things like Old Testament, I should be stoned and killed things. I got to tell you, I do know that about some of you. I do know that, actually, about some of you, and Paul knew that about some of you. Trust me, it's not about, the whole point of this is that it's not about anything you have done. You're not great. You're the opposite of great in your own. In Christ, you're beautiful. In uh, 1 John, there's this funny little thing that happens that gives seminary students and pretty much anyone reading it fits. He gives this paradox, and he says, you know what? If you're in Christ, if you've been born of God, you will not keep on sinning. You know what else he says? If you're born of God, and you say without sin, you're without sin, you're a liar. <laughs> Does anyone see the paradox? If you're in Christ, you don't keep sinning. If you're in Christ, you can't say you're without sin. How we reconcile the paradox, the reformers had a, had a way of describing this. So they said, you're simultaneous at peccator. You're simultaneously just and sinful. You are by nature still a child of Adam. You are in Christ justified. That should be great news. If you hear the message this morning of, of, of just unfathomable grace of the love of God, and you think, well, you know, then it doesn't really matter what I do. I can just be as bad as I want to because I have my get-out-of-hell-free card. The first thing I'm going to do is say, go home, download John's sermon, and listen again about motivations. The second thing is, I don't think that most of I don't think any of us here who actually proclaims the name of Christ feels that way. We struggle against sin. If you read Romans 7, Paul tells you, I, I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. I, I don't do the things that I want to do, but I don't do. He goes through this entire thing, and it's hard to follow sometimes. And he says, at the end of the day, I, I perceive a law of death in my body, in my members. And that's Paul. But he, but he imagines someone coming along and saying, okay, well, then I should just keep on sinning so that I can get more grace, right? And Paul says something in Greek that is that's about as emphatic as you can get. He says, may againeta, may it never be. May something like that never come from the mouth of someone who from the same mouth the profession of Christ comes. Now I gotta tell you, many of you are <laughs> many of you know this experience. You're sinful, believe it or not. Uh, welcome to the sermon. We've been doing this for about 35 minutes. Each one of you is sinful. And we struggle against our sin. I got to say that I, I have never met a Christian who struggles against sin who is flippant about it. You might sin, 
And you might sin even with what the Bible calls a high hand. You might suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit against your sin. But what you never do is you're never you're never flippant and say, you know what, I want, you know, I can just do whatever I want now because I have grace. I I I I got for Christians that those two things just don't go together. Those professions don't come out of the same mouth. We struggle with sin, and if you're worried about sin so bad that you think God might not love you anymore, your problem isn't flippancy. Pride, almost certainly, but it's not flippancy. And so we sin when we suffer. For me, it's headaches and chronic pain. Uh, it's, it's the impact that that has on me being in bed and not being able to see my wife, the, the self-loathing that comes from being in bed and, and, and feeling like I'm letting my, my boys down because I can't be out there and playing with them like they want me to. Uh, it, it's, it's knowing that, my, that in, in my pain and in, in my suffering that I can be selfish and I can be irritable and I can be honestly a total recluse. That I just, I just don't want to be in the world that day because it just hurts to be in the world that day. Uh, it, that type of suffering can be a fuel for my sin because I'm, I'm broken. Because I am, apart from Christ, I am sinful. I'm a child of Adam. And that might not be your suffering. Your suffering is, is most likely very different. But that's still your sin. That's still your brokenness. You still are, apart from Jesus a child of Adam, and we all together respond poorly to our suffering. And we all have the tendency to navel-gaze and neighbor-gaze, to be self-loathing and to start wondering, woe is me, why am I suffering like this? We don't take the time to focus on the cross, to look at our suffering through the lens of the good promises of Jesus Christ, that God is doing something good for you. He foreknew us, he predestined us before time, he chose us to adoption, he called us to life, he justified us, he glorified us, and he's shown us that there is nothing in all of creation that can stand a snowball's chance in hell of changing that. He knows how to bless his children. And this isn't prosperity gospel, he's not blessing us necessarily with, with health and wealth. Again, we're talking about suffering. <laughs> right? He's talking about hope and life. So why do we hope, why do we have life when we suffer? Because God has promised good to us and our God does not break his promises. And I gotta, I gotta encourage you as much as I can to learn it as much as you can right now. Learn it as much as you can before suffering and tragedy actually strikes. Move the furniture into the house so that when you actually need to lay down and rest on it, it's already there as much as you possibly can. You're, you're, you're going to really struggle if you try to learn it on the fly. You'll learn it after. Most Christians learn it after. Uh, and we continue to learn it after because we're stubborn. Uh, but learn how to find rest in the promises of God before the suffering even starts. And you'll learn that, again, the reason why you suffer and you can rest in it, is not because you've been cut off. It's not because God has stopped loving you. It's not because you've worked yourself out of adoption. You can trust that God is doing something good in your life and that there is nothing 
in all of creation that can change God loving you from that. If you're here and you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't know the unimaginable grace and love and comfort that we Christians have in our Savior, then I just encourage you to seek him while he can be found. Turn and repent. Trust in Christ and his good provision for you. You're still going to be broken, broken, but suffering will no longer be pointless. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we have such a great promise of your love. We have such a promise in your love that we can't even fathom, that, that, that in our self-loathing, in our, in, our, in our staring in on ourselves, in our turning in on ourselves, uh, even that is a way that we sin in turning away and taking our eyes off of you and off of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be honored and glorified and even what little we do understand of that. I pray for, for everyone here that as we are suffering, as we enter into suffering, Lord, we do it uh, with the mind of Christ. We do it with the hope of the gospel undergirding us. We do it looking forward to the hope of life that you have guaranteed for us by your name. I thank you that we can cling to that as we cling to you because we know that you are a God who loves us, who has saved us, who has done a great thing for us and has promised that you will finish it. You have promised good to us and we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.